0: I'll invite you to turn your Bibles tonight to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 is a, a wonderful chapter that's full of the healing work of God. It starts off in the first few verses talking about a leper that comes to Jesus and he says, I believe you can heal me if you will. In other words, he had faith in God's ability to heal him from this incurable disease called leprosy. But he didn't know and wasn't sure if Jesus operating on God's behalf willed for him to be healed. And Jesus reached forth his hand immediately and touched him and said, I will be thou clean. Now, if Jesus is not a respecter of persons, if Jesus, Jesus as God's representative here on the earth is not a respecter of persons, even as the Bible says that he's not, then what God would have wanted for the leper has to be the same thing that he wants for you and me. Then it tells us the story about the centurion that comes to Jesus. And he tells him about somebody in his household that is uh, ill. And Jesus says, I'll come to go to your house and lay hands on this afflicted one. And the centurion demonstrates his great faith by saying, there's no need to come to my house. I understand how authority works. Just say the word and he'll be healed long distance. And Jesus does so. And his servant was healed from that self-same hour, the Bible says. And Jesus commends him for a great faith. He said, I've not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Then it tells us about Peter's mother-in-law who has a fever and is ill. And Jesus enters into her house, uh, probably Peter's house, really, there in the city of Capernaum, lays hands on her and the fever departs from her. I want to start reading with verse 16, when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and he healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities, and bare our sicknesses. Now folks, there's there's two things that we need to keep in mind here. One is, God always speaks in the past tense for us who are recipients of all the work that Jesus did on the cross as our substitute and as a sacrifice in our place we understand that the work of Jesus is finished he's seated at the right hand of the father the fact that he's sitting down at God's right hand indicates everything's been done he's not scrambling trying to finish the work he's not upset or anxious about the things that need to be done He's seated at the right hand of the Father because everything that can be done, everything that should be done has been done. So therefore the Bible says, Peter referring back to the finished work of Jesus, 1 Peter 2.23 tells us about Jesus on the cross and the sacrifice that he made for us. Verse 24 says, and with his stripes we were healed in the Old Testament it looks forward to the things that Jesus would do for us and one was one thing the Bible identifies very clearly is that he provides healing for our flesh but Peter writing from the church age or during the church age is looking back to the finished work of Jesus and he says it's already been done we are already healed Now I know if people get caught up with the, the, the contrariness of of the idea that we would say something or claim our healing when there might be the physical presence of sickness and disease in our bodies. That's just understanding how faith works. But the point I'm trying to make here is that God expected Jesus to be faithful throughout his life. And so as soon as Jesus came to the earth, as far as God's concerned, since the whole reason he came to the earth was to die on the cross as our sacrifice and as our substitute. Then everything that Jesus did from the time that he was born here on the earth till the time he went to the cross was in fulfilling the work that the Old Testament prophets had spoken about. Now I want you to, we're going to come back here in just a minute, but I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 tells us about where Jesus identifies the hypocrisy of the uh, Pharisees. And so it tells us in the preceding verses from where we want to start reading that the Jews took counsel about how to kill him. They recognized that they were not going to be able to co-opt him into their group so that they could control him. So early on in his ministry, they identified that they're going to need to kill him, bring him to death because because of the fact that he's exposing what they're doing as not being required by God or pleasing to God but I want to start reading here in verse uh, Matthew chapter 12 verse 15 it says but when Jesus knew it this is talking about the plans of the Pharisees to kill him when he knew it he withdrew himself from thence and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all and he charged that they should not make him known that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet Saying, "Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth, till he send forth judgment into victory." That's talking about the cross. The judgment came upon him on the cross. That led to the victory of the new birth for him and for us. Notice verse 21, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Now, folks, if you think about the four gospels, there's really very little information or very little that tells us that uh, uh, where the Gentiles were trusting in Jesus. Now, there was a a smattering of this. That's certainly true. We just referred to the uh, centurion. And his understanding of authority. Well he was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. Apparently he had built the synagogue in Capernaum. For the Jewish people. To have a place to worship. And remember the Old Testament command. That God made to Abraham. Was I'll bless them that bless you. And curse those that curse you. And so he certainly. Through his blessing of the Jews. Through his giving. And through his position. Through giving them a position of favor. He certainly would have been worthy of Jesus doing something to help him. And that's why Jesus was willing to go to his house. So Jesus commended the centurion, a Gentile, for his great faith. And then another time we have records where Jesus withdrew himself from the multitudes and went to a certain place and found a woman that was a Gentile as well, the Syrophoenician woman, who would not give up. Now she, she was not in the same position as the centurion, We don't have any record of anything that she's done to bless the Jews. And so she was not in position to receive the blessing of Abraham, specifically physical healing for her daughter. But through her faith and her unwillingness to let go of what she knew God would provide for her, Jesus commended her great faith and her daughter was made whole as well. So there are a couple of uh, uh, instances where the Gentiles trusted in Jesus, trusted in the name of Jesus. But by and large, Jesus had very, very little to do with the Gentiles throughout his three years on earth, throughout the three years of his earthly ministry. But this is saying, we just read in Matthew chapter 12, talking about how the judgment of the Gentiles shall turn toward their victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Well, when did that happen? It certainly didn't happen in the ministry of Jesus when he was here on the earth. When did that happen? Well, it was something that took place after the Holy Ghost was poured out and salvation was made available to mankind. But the Bible talks about it as if it was already fulfilled. But literally and specifically, we know that couldn't have been fulfilled until after Jesus was raised from the dead. Are you with me? Now, with that in mind, go back with me to Matthew chapter 8. Let's look again at what Matthew said. When the evening was come, again, this is verse 16. When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now, the part where it says that it might be fulfilled, what was fulfilled? We have to apply the same measure that, uh, to Matthew chapter 8 as we applied to Matthew chapter 12 concerning the Gentiles trusting in his name. We've got to be consistent when we apply interpretation to scriptures so that we can understand them. Well, we know and we'll look in just a few moments at what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 53 where it talks about Jesus taking upon himself the beating and the punishment to pay the price for sickness and disease. But that's not happening here in Matthew chapter 8. In other words, again, since God considered Jesus to be here for a specific purpose and a specific mission, in one sense, the mission was already accomplished because Jesus was here and would be faithful to the work that God has given him to do. But this is saying specifically that something was being fulfilled here. What was being fulfilled Folks, the only thing that really applies to the fulfillment of Jesus' work here on the earth, his ministry here on the earth, is in the last phrase of Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16, where it says, and healed all that were sick. Did you notice it said the same thing in Matthew chapter 12 that we looked at? He healed all that were sick. Folks, the point I'm trying to make here is that the fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied could only be fulfilled if everybody was healed it was the healing of all that were sick that was the fulfillment of what Isaiah said well we're going to have to look back at what Isaiah said then Isaiah chapter 53 we usually just take a couple of verses out of this chapter but this is the whole chapter talks about what Jesus would do for us and what, if, what he would do for mankind from Isaiah's point of view, but what he did for mankind from our point of view. Verse 1, who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now folks, notice the first thing that Isaiah the prophet does is connect faith with the strength of God, the power of God to bring us into the reality of whatever Jesus did for us. Who has believed our report? Well, the ones that believe the report are the ones that the arm of the Lord, the strength of the power of God, will be manifest to. For he shall grow up before him. This is talking about Jesus growing up before God as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. I have a hard time with this scripture, folks. I imagine Jesus as the tallest one of the crowd, the best-looking one of the crowd, the strongest-looking guy in the crowd. I just imagine Jesus as being head and shoulders above everybody else in his appearance. Certainly, we knew he was unmatched as far as the inner man is concerned, as far as the spiritual aspects of his, of his existence were concerned. But I have a hard time. I certainly believe it because the Word says so but it doesn't make sense to me that Jesus would not have been that striking movie star good looks guy but the Bible says he was an average guy so much so that nobody would look at him and think he was anything special God doesn't work the way we would does he he is despised verse 3 he is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief Now, throughout this chapter, these words sorrows and griefs are going to be used. The word grief literally means sickness. The word sorrow means pain. So he's despised and rejected of men, a man of pains and acquainted with sickness. Well, how was he acquainted with sickness? Through the healing power of God that delivered people from it. Not because he ever experienced sickness himself, but because he was the deliverer and the healer of all sickness and disease. He's despised and rejected of men, a man of pains and acquainted with grief or sickness. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, verse 4, surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Now this is the verse of scripture that Mark chapter 8 verse 17 refers to. He was wounded for our transgressions. He took upon himself our sicknesses and carried our infirmities. Matthew uses sickness and infirmities meaning weakness, where Isaiah used sickness and pain. But this is the fulfillment that he's talking about. Again, the fulfillment could not take place in reality, in totality, until after the work on the cross was finished. So what is Jesus fulfilling that Isaiah said in Matthew chapter 8? Well, let's read it again. We might have missed it. Verse 4, surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Now, who is our? Peter does the same thing where he says Jesus took our infirmities and carried our sickness or carried our pains and with his stripes we are healed or we were healed the word our has to mean the person that's doing the writing and whoever reads what he wrote doesn't it when Peter said we were healed by his stripes we were healed who's we well Peter's including himself and the we is anybody and everybody that reads what he wrote as well So the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy was the healing of all that were sick. Not one person left out. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. The only time the word surely is used in this chapter, the messianic chapter, is concerning sickness and disease and the price that Jesus paid to take it away. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. That's our. He was bruised for our iniquities. Now the difference, between, the difference between transgressions and iniquities has to do with the price that he paid for the original sin that opened the door to sin and death into the world as opposed to personal sin. See, if Jesus just paid the price for Adam's sin, And didn't pay the price for your personal sins or mine. Then we'd still be separated from God. Because we would fall just as surely as Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. But since he he paid the price for the sin that caused the fall of man. And again opened the door to spiritual death and destruction into the earth. And he paid the price for your personal sins and mine. Then salvation becomes a complete work. It becomes a complete work that's not dependent on your actions or mine, but solely on the work of the one who made the sacrifice for us, the one who died in our place. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. That word peace is the word shalom. It means a variety of things, but one thing is translated in in several places in the Old Testament is the word poverty. I'm sorry, it's the word prosperity. The redemption from poverty. Paul tells us the same thing when he writes to the Corinthians. And he says Jesus was made poor for our sakes. That we through his poverty might be rich. Well we certainly know that prosperity was a part of the the Abrahamic covenant. It was certainly a part of what God had blessed Abraham with. One of the first things it tells us after the Lord appeared to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The result of that, the Bible tells us, was that Abraham was or became very rich in silver and cattle and gold. So God's covenant partner by what Abraham and his servant says later on in the book of Genesis, which came at the hand and the direction of God himself. You remember when Abraham went to war with those that had captured the city of Sodom where his nephew Lot was, Abraham went to war, came back victorious, and the king of Sodom tried to make a deal with him. He said, you take the people, or I'm sorry, he said, give me the people back, and you take the riches, the spoil of war. And Abraham wouldn't have anything to do with it. He said, I don't want anybody, you included, having the opportunity to say that they made me rich, because God and God alone made him rich. Well, God never changes. If God cared about Abraham's material well-being under a covenant that's not as good as ours, Hebrews chapter 8 says we have a better covenant established on better promises, then why wouldn't he want the same thing for us? He would want the same thing. He would want the same blessing, the same prosperity made available to us unless he's changed. Thank God he never changes. So the chastisement of our peace was upon him. In other words, there was a specific price that Jesus paid through the shedding of his blood to provide for our material well-being here on the earth. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now Abraham looks forward. I'm, I'm sorry, Isaiah, the prophet, looks forward to the work of the Messiah and so he says with his stripes we are healed meaning as soon as Jesus takes those stripes upon himself then healing will be provided for mankind as I said Peter looking back to the cross and the work that Jesus did said with his stripes we were healed we were healed let's keep reading and see some other things that it says here about Jesus All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah paints the picture of the sacrificial lamb the one that was sacrificed for the sins of Israel. Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Now notice that phrase, he was cut off from the land of the living. That's a Levitical phrase. On the day of atonement, which it refers to in the previous verse, how that Jesus was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't open his mouth. He didn't try to defend himself. He didn't try to escape any of the price that God sent him to the earth to pay for mankind. But on the day of atonement there were two sacrifices made. Two goats. And the high priest examined them, found them both. He was required to find them both without spot or blemish. And then they drew lots. They rolled the dice to see which one would be which because there was a specific work and an important work for both of these sacrificial animals one we know would have his throat cut and the the blood of that goat spilled and splashed against the altar to signify that the blood of this innocent goat who was without spot or blemish would satisfy the claims of justice for a one year period of time before God but the other goat was important too he was what was called the scapegoat now the scapegoat was brought before the high priest and the high priest would lay the hand the, his hands on the head of this goat and proclaim all the sins and all the iniquities of Israel it was a very lengthy process it was a very specific and detailed list of things that he was pronouncing over this goat while his hands were on it and the reality of his hands being upon this goat It was symbolic, certainly, but it was the transference by the high priest that represented the children of Israel upon this goat, this animal, this sacrifice, this substitute for mankind or for Israel at least. He pronounced all the curses of all the sins that were known unto man. As I said, it was very extensive because it was supposed to be and was required to be. A complete transference, a complete taking away of the sins of the Israelites and transferred or placed upon this goat. After that work was done, the Bible clearly identifies and requires that a strong soldier, a very fit man, would take this goat out into the wilderness where the judgment of God would fall on it out there. And that was called. The wilderness that they were, that the, the strong man was taking this goat out to, this scapegoat to, was a land that was cut off from the land of the living. So this phrase, he was cut off from the land of the living, represents the fact that Jesus was the scapegoat as well as the lamb that was slain. Now cut off from the land of the living is talking about where Jesus was for those three days and nights between the crucifixion and the resurrection. I know it's not something that a lot of people like to think about. I don't particularly enjoy thinking about the suffering of Jesus myself, do you? I realize that it was necessary, but the greatest focus that I like to place on that, I'll explain to you in a moment, And so, as a result, a lot of people don't really think through where Jesus had to have been for those three days and nights. If Jesus is dying the death of the wicked, which all of mankind was identified with, then Jesus had to be in the lowest part of hell rather than Abraham's bosom or what is commonly called paradise. If Jesus died the death of a righteous one, which he would have if he had gone to paradise, We know from the stories that Jesus told us about that that it's a place that's also referred to as Abraham's bosom and the Old Testament saints were there waiting for the finished work of Jesus so that they could be led from their captivity to the presence of God. But until Jesus shed his blood and provided righteousness through that shed blood there had to be a holding place for the righteous dead waiting for the promise of the Father. But this says Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. That has to mean that he died the death of an unrighteous and a a wicked and evil one. The lowest part of hell where those who are there exist and experience torment. And I don't believe personally that Jesus just experienced the torment that anybody else would experience when they refused to keep the law of God under the old covenant. The Bible gives us some indication, not a lot, but some indication in Psalm 88 about how the judgment of God came wave after wave after wave after wave against him. The psalmist prophesied that Jesus was being crushed under the judgment of God. The righteous judgment of God. See, folks, if Jesus went to paradise and not to hell, then somebody still has to die for your sins. Somebody has to die the death of the evil and the wicked. Thank God because he's our sacrifice and he's our substitute. He did that for us. Amen. Well, let's read a little bit further. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of thy people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. You see that word death in verse 9? I want you to do something for me. I want you to look up in any concordance or any safe reference guide and find out that this word death is in the plural, not the singular. It's a poor translation here because the Bible talks about Jesus dying and identifying with mankind in his death. Jesus died spiritually as well as physically. If he didn't die spiritually, if he was not made sin, then your sins and mine haven't been taken care of. Thank God they were dealt with. So he died and identified with the wicked in his grave And the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now this is a phrase I want you to see too. He has put him to grief. This word grief is not the same word that's used earlier in the chapter. That's translated as uh, sickness. But it comes from the same root word that it's used before. So here when it says God has made him grief. It's not saying that God made him sickness. Is it's saying that Jesus, just as he became sin for our sake, that we, by his righteous work, could be made righteousness, the righteousness of God in Christ. In the same way that God made him to be sin, God made him to be sickness. Now, that doesn't mean he had leprosy. That doesn't mean on the cross there were these multiplicity of diseases that started coming on his body. It's talking about paying the price for sin and for sickness, for disease. See, all these things are wrapped up in Adam's original sin. There was no sin, there was no, nothing that could hurt or harm mankind prior to the fall when spiritual death began to rule and reign over this earth. So here where it says God put him to grief, it says just as real, just as specifically as it does that God made Jesus sin for our sake who knew no sin, That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In the same way God made him to be sickness for us. That we by his stripes were healed. Jesus was made to be sin. Jesus was made to be sick. Or sickness. Now think about that. If Jesus was made to be sin, and we know that he was, nobody really argues with that. They may not carry it out to its full logical conclusion about the fact that if he was made to be sin, then he had to die spiritually. I realize that a lot of people shy away from that and don't want to consider it, and that's okay with me. I don't care one way or the other. But just because somebody else shies away from the truth doesn't mean I'm going to. But in the same way that God made him to be sin. The reason, the purpose for God making him to be sin. And again, it comes through the shedding of his blood. By the shedding of Jesus' blood, righteous blood, perfect blood, holy blood. God made him to be sin. Meaning God caused him to take upon himself and to bear the sins of the people. Sins of mankind. Well, if God made him to bear the sins of mankind, that would have to mean he doesn't want you or me to bear it. Well, since that's true, the same thing can be applied. The same logic can and should be applied to the fact that God made Jesus to be sickness. If God made him to be sickness, the purpose for making him to be sickness would be so that he would bear away the sicknesses of the people. Well, if Jesus bore them, God doesn't want you and me to bear them too. See, everything always traces back to Isaiah's prophecy. It talks about the work that Jesus did for us. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Surely, truly, without a shadow of a doubt, he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. So God made him to be sick, or sickness, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief for sickness. When thou shalt see his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Folks, righteousness means a lot more to God than it seems to mean to a lot of church people. May it not be that righteousness means more to him than it does to us. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now I want you to back up with me to verse... Oh, where do we want to go? Let's back up to verse 4 again. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Notice the last phrase in verse 5, and with his stripes we are healed. This word stripes is the word bruised too. Now, Dr. T.J. Macrossin was a Hebrew scholar in the 1800s, I think it was. And he did an extensive study, which is pretty well common information and and easily available and readily available now with the advent of computers and that type of thing. But he studied the Old Testament text and the wording that was used And he was greatly intrigued by the fact that it says with his stripes but should have been translated by his bruise we are healed. And here's the distinction that he made with that and the reason that it became an important issue. He found out how the Romans used to beat people and the stripes that Jesus took upon his back took place in Pilate's court. When Jesus was taken first To Pilate, the Jews were trying to convince Pilate of his wrongdoing. And Pilate really wasn't buying into their story. He knew that they were doing this for politics, not because there was some great wrong uh, that had been committed or great sin that had been committed by Jesus. And he tells us from the study of Roman history that the Romans would use these short whips. And in these whips, they would be leather straps, but they would embed glass and rock and bone chips and anything and everything they could think to put on these, uh, I think they call them flagellums. I think that's what the whips are called. But they would make these things in such a way that it would inflict the greatest degree of pain upon the person being punished. And he gave historical evidence and instances of people that were beaten so severely that they died from the beating. That was not the work that Pilate intended for his soldiers to inflict upon Jesus. Although this word bruise, or the word stripes, which should really be the word bruise, literally means to beat again and again and again. But he goes into some gory detail about the effect that this whipping or this beating would take upon the the person whose back was being opened to punishment. Because of these embedded rocks and stones and chips and whatever else was in there, they would whip the individual and then yank it back in such a way that it would rip out pieces of flesh from his back. Now here's the reason why that's important. The reason that the word bruise is used rather than the word stripes, as the King James translates it, is because he identified, and this was was some scientific formula that he used. He said the back of Jesus had to have been in appearance like it was one mark. And he further identified that that would mean that there could not be any strip of flesh left on his back that was greater than one sixty-fourth of an inch. Now the reason that couldn't have been the case is because if you could see one piece of flesh that was bigger than one sixty-fourth of an inch then it wouldn't look like one solid bruise or one solid mark. Now folks the, the Roman soldiers are taking out on Jesus every frustration every bit of hatred and emotion that they had against the Jews. And I don't mean this just from a a natural or a human standpoint. These things were being done by the will of God so that your redemption and mine could be complete. We get a little hint of how bad it was because Jesus faltered under the weight of his own crossbeam that he's carrying to the place of crucifixion. This thing would have been laid on his back. We think of the crucifixion in terms of planed wood, everything made just so. But that's not the way they crucified people. They crucified people by taking trees and trimming the trees in such a way that a crossbeam could set into that tree so that the victim, the evildoer, could hang from that. So this rough-hewn wood that was placed on Jesus' back, can you imagine the pain that he suffered every step along the way? Can you imagine the pain that was inflicted when he stumbled and fell, as the Scripture tells us that he did? Now, folks, the important part of this for me is the reality that Jesus taking upon himself these stripes, Jesus being beaten so severely that his back seems like one solid mass of blood and whatever is exposed by the beating of the skin, the laying open of the skin. Again, Dr. McCrossin talks about in many places, in many instances these Roman soldiers that would inflict these beatings, and it became sport, blood sport for them. But in it, doling out this punishment, there were times where they would aim for exposed flesh so they could gouge out eyes in some instances. The cheeks and the cheekbones were broken and, and, uh, and sm- smashed, Frequently, by and large, they're just trying to make it as awful and horrible as you can imagine it to be. And this is what Jesus endured. Now, certainly you understand that the reason or the significance behind Jesus taking this bruise upon his back was that the end result was blood would be shed. See, I think sometimes people that resist the idea that healing is available for everybody in the plan of redemption don't realize that the stripes that came upon Jesus back in Pilate's court was just as much about the spilling of his blood as his death on the cross. Jesus could have avoided Every bit of this at any point in time. We know he wanted to. Avoid it, that is. We know in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to his father and says, if, this, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, it was possible. All he had to do is say, I've gone far enough. All he had to do was turn his back on the rest of the work. First time that flagellum hit across his back, he could have stopped right there and said, okay, I'm done. Even on the cross, he told one of the thieves, remember the thieves were to his right and his left, he told one of the thieves that he could call 12 legions of angels to come get him down from the cross. That was much later. After he took these stripes on his back. Jesus was willing. To experience excruciating pain. Not just to carry your sins. But to carry sickness and disease upon himself too. So that you and I wouldn't have to. So that you and I wouldn't have to. Now, folks, in conclusion, I want you to turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, I'm going to start reading in verse 14. James is writing to the church, really the church is, that had been scattered because of the persecution that came upon the church. This is probably the persecution that arose because of Stephen's death and stoning. There were several different... Waves of persecution that took place in the early days of the church. Meaning the first generation of the church. But in writing to people that have had to leave their homes. People that have had to leave the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, And take up residence somewhere else where they could be safer. Than right under the nose of the, the Jews. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. James writes to the church and he says is any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Notice that verse 14 again. Is any sick among you? Notice James does not allow for the possibility that there might be people that are hearing this letter being read or reading it themselves who are sick because it's God's plan and purpose. He gives the answer for every person in the body of Christ that might be sick. He doesn't say that the church people should pray to find out if they're one of the lucky ones that God will heal or to settle it once and for all whether or not God wants them to be sick for his glory being made manifest in some silly way the same answer is the, the answer is the same for all that are sick let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the lord this word pray literally means to vow or declare it's not talking about making a request it's talking about making a declaration or a statement What declaration or statement should we make when we're seeking healing from sickness and disease? Well, again, as we said, 1 Peter 2.24, Peter talked about Jesus dying on the cross and that by his stripes we were healed. In Acts chapter 9, it tells us about Peter coming upon a certain place and a crippled man named Aeneas and, Jesus, and Peter says to him, Jesus Christ maketh you whole. Now there's one of two things that he could be saying. He could be saying Jesus will heal you or he could be saying Jesus has healed you. Well the phrase is almost exact as the scripture that we've referred to a couple of times already in 1 Peter 2.24. With his stripes you were healed. The best guess that I can make the one that seems to fit the different instruction, the different scriptures that give us instruction, is that he says to Aeneas, Jesus healed you. Again, talking about the finished work of Christ. Jesus Christ has healed you. And the end result is Aeneas stands up and leaps and walks, to the astonishment of all those that were gathered. Peter didn't have to pray to find out if it was God's will to heal the boy or the man. the only explanation for that is he knows that sickness and disease is always from the devil so here's the vow or the declaration that we should make let them pray over him or vow or declare over him what should be that declaration what should be that vow we were healed by the stripes of jesus he took our infirmities and he bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we were healed. Notice verse 15, he says, And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Well, Mark 11, 24 tells us what the prayer of faith is. Jesus, after having said that faith works by speaking to the mountain or speaking to the problem, goes on to tell us how faith works in prayer. Mark 11, 24, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray believe that you receive them and you shall have them so the prayer of faith that's being spoken of here in James chapter 5 and verse 15 is defined by Jesus as the prayer that believes it receives when it prays now notice how that fits together in the preceding verse there are vows or declarations that are made Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sickness and with his stripes we were healed and then praying over him The prayer of faith means to take hold of or to appropriate that which Jesus has already done concerning our sickness and our disease. And because we're convinced of God's will, his plan and his purpose concerning healing and health, meaning very simply that he's always willing to heal. That healing and health deliverance is always his plan, always his will. That prayer of faith takes hold of the finished work of Jesus and ends in the glad confession, it's mine, I have it now. It ends with the statement, I believe I receive my healing. And notice what the Bible says will take place. And it gives no wiggle room whatsoever. The prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. You do realize healing is being saved from sickness, don't you? The prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. This is God's part. Our part is to believe we receive our healing when we pray. Because Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we were healed. God's part is to raise us up. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if, everybody say if. If he's committed sins. They shall be forgiven him. Notice he doesn't say everybody that's sick has committed sins. He kind of adds it on as an afterthought, because there are instances. They're not very common, but there are instances where people, through their own wrongdoing, have opened the door to the devil, and he's placed sickness and or disease on their bodies. But even at that, and of course, the devil's always quick to tell you that that's your situation. If you hadn't been such a terrible Christian, this wouldn't be happening to you. If you weren't so weak in your faith, these things wouldn't be happening. But I want you to notice something, folks. Even if our condition, and our doesn't mean just being you, it means anybody, any child of God, anywhere, even though that condition that they find themselves in might be the result of their own wrongdoing, The same prayer of faith that heals the sick brings forgiveness of sin for the individual as well. And if he's committed sin, it shall be forgiven him. In other words, God doesn't let the commission or the act of sin in our lives disqualify us from receiving our healing. Even though that's the very thing the devil tells you why you're not getting results. And the prayer of faith shall heal the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Well, if it doesn't stop God from ministering his healing mercy to his children, why should we let sin keep us from taking hold of what Jesus paid for? See, that's the part the devil won't tell you. Even if it is your fault, even if it is due to your wrongdoing or mine, There's forgiveness from that sin, from that wrongdoing, because God still wants us to walk and abide in divine health. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Folks, let's let's lift our hands and just thank God for his healing mercy. Lord, we bless you. We magnify your name. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for finishing the work. For taking the punishment for our iniquities and our transgressions. For suffering the punishment for poverty. For suffering the punishment for sickness and disease. We bless you, Lord Jesus. We believe your word. We believe the work is finished. We believe healing is ours. We believe that by your stripes... Or by the bruise that you allowed to come upon your back, the awful and terrible beating that you experienced. That beating brought us healing and health. So, Father, right now, on behalf of every person that's here and every person under the sound of my voice, we declare that healing is ours we believe that we receive our healing now according to your word and because of the wonderful work, the finished work of Jesus himself. Thank you, Lord, that you raise us up. And if our wrongdoing has anything to do with the condition that we find ourselves in, we thank you for forgiving that sin. We thank you for not allowing that sin to keep us out of your healing mercy and the goodness thereof. So we say, Father, that we believe, say this after me, I believe that I receive healing from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. And I say that from this moment forward, The Lord is raising me up. Hallelujah. 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 Now, folks, the only way that that could not work is if you believe your sickness or disease is greater than the power of the Word of God. Let me clue you in. It's not. Amen. Let's all stand. Now let's thank him one more time because we are healed. Not going to be, but we are healed. We bless you, Father. It's so good to be healed. It's so good to take hold of what Jesus paid for us. It's so good to experience your mercy, your healing mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you restore our health and you heal our wounds. We thank you that because we found your word, it's life unto us. And your word is health to all our flesh. We bless you, Holy Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us, folks. Have a great week.